The world has gone mad. I've heard that sentiment over and over again in recent weeks. People have written me and texted me and called me to tell me that they feel profoundly overwhelmed by how divided we all are. Many people who have contacted me feel like the mainstream media is not doing a good enough job at digging into the complexity of the issues we're facing and that it is failing to reflect the full spectrum of views and experiences out there. My next guest has thought deeply about the challenges facing media right now. We're not as good as we need to be right now at creating the conditions in our interviews and in our stories where people know that we are actually truly interested in hearing what they think, where they are, what their paths are, and how their paths led them to their position on any issue. If we can't do that for our society, our society will break. It is already somewhat broken. Monica Guzman is a Seattle journalist. She's also a director at Braver Angels, a grassroots organization that works to address polarization, and a former fellow at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University. Monica is the author of a new book, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. She joins me today to talk about this powerful new book and the overlooked superpower that she says we all need to rediscover. And that is the magic of a good conversation. Monica Guzman is my guest today on Lean Out. Monica, welcome to Lean Out. Mm, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's so nice to speak with you again. What a book you have written. So let's start. I want to start with the scene that you opened the book with. It's election day 2020. You were driving from your home in Seattle to visit your parents in you are anticipating watching the results come in with your parents who are Mexican immigrants who voted for Trump twice. What stands out to you most about that day when you look back on it? I still wonder why I did it. <laughs> I still wonder what drove me to ask my parents if I could watch the election results from their house. And I still remember the look on my mother's face when I asked her. It was like this conflict between we love our daughter, we'll do anything she asks us, and also this is crazy. Why would she want to do this? I remember my mom coming to me a little bit later after she had said, yeah, of course, come over if you really want to. She said, but Monica, you have to understand, I please just let us watch Fox News. Will you just let us watch Fox News without complaining? I said, of course, yes, no, I'm there to be with you guys. Like, let's do this together. Honestly, it's a series of scenes from... There was a really big argument we had that night after the results, you know, had come in and pretty much all the results had come in from then. And we were just blowing up at each other around race and just me and my mom and my dad. And just, oh, I remember walking upstairs when Trump said something to the effect of, I don't even believe what's coming in as far as election results. I just stormed out of the room like I see people do in the movies, but I almost never do myself. I was so overwhelmed you know, seeing my parents just kind of listening to him. And I was just like, no. And I just stormed out and came back later somehow in one piece. <laughs> what do you think you learned from that day? I learned that it is possible and it is doable. And I think when I ask myself again today, why did I do that? Why did I feel the need? It was like I knew that I needed to take my own medicine. I wrote a whole book about the importance of getting curious across divides, about making sure that we're asking what we're missing, about making sure that we're getting curious with people who disagree with us uh, rather than just like talking about them. And 
I think I just needed to put it to the test on, mm. on one of the most consequential days. Like if on, if on this day, <laughs> if on this day I can be there, uh, then I'll have learned something. And I, and I did. Uh, and, and there was a moment I, I talk about it in the book. There was a moment where <laughs> my mom was already in her pajamas and we just kind of sat there and it was almost a suspension of the extraordinary uncertainty and, and nervousness and anxiety that we all felt, but from different directions. Um, you know, just to sit there and appreciate, it, I guess, being related, <laughs> just, just appreciating it. Um, and the fact that we could cross these divides and that they did, you know, learn some things from me and my points and that I learned some things from them and their points. <laughs> and it's, it's hard to pick out all the examples we take all day, but, um, but it really, it really is possible. And it really was illuminating. Mm. Your, your book is dedicated to your city, Seattle, and uh, you've experienced this polarization in your family life. You've also experienced it in your city. Mm-hmm. So I would love it if you could tell me a little bit about the founding of the Evergrey and the process you to use to crowdsource audience questions and let that lead your journalism. I found that fascinating. Oh my gosh. Yes. We had so much fun. So before we started the Evergrey, which was, uh, it is primarily an email newsletter, we did this research, uh, about 60 interviews with a selection of ordinary people from all over the city. And in each interview, we were out to understand how they related to their city and how information or engagement with others affected their relationship. And so we asked two questions that I absolutely loved. One of them was, imagine it's a year out from now and you can't stand Seattle. You want to get out of here. What had to have happened for you to get there? And another one was, it's a year from now and you've never loved Seattle more. What had to happen for you to get there? Um, Normally in journalism, we have these conventional ways that we think of uh, the news, right? The crime beat and the health beat and the whatnot. And instead we thought, no, 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 let's really begin with the audience. Let's ask them what even matters to them today? Let's start from scratch. And mm. so we centered everything right on people. I'll never forget, we learned from one of the people we interviewed, he loved tango, tango. And he used to go to all these tango classes and there was this active community that he was a part of. Anyway, and because of traffic and because of the disruptive growth of the city, uh, it turns out that the community that always used to go to the same tango clubs around the city couldn't anymore because everyone was too far apart. And so there were now like, you know, the sort of Northeast and the Southeast and the Northwest and the Southwest quadrants of these clubs. And basically he talked about access. He talked about, I can't access my city the same way. I want to be able to access it. And that's how we thought about transportation. So it's a, it's a completely different way of, of thinking about things where you begin with people, where it's all about people. That's where you get your cues. That's where you check in. Hmm. That's fascinating. What made you decide to do that? to do it that way? Honestly, it's just, <laughs> I just don't know how, how anything public is relevant unless it is constantly plugged in to actual people's actual concerns and actual lives. Um, you can begin somewhere and say, oh, this, 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 this struck a chord, right? We're just going to keep doing it this way. And often that's good enough. But these days, especially with the competition of digital uh, the competition for people's attention being the way that so many industries survive. Um, you, you're just not relevant unless you're relevant. And, and you have to make sure you're relevant by never assuming that you know what you need to know about how you tell stories responsibly and effectively and impactfully for a whole community. I am not the communities I cover. 
you know, my job is to just continually listen and listen and listen and listen and listen and listen. So you can probably see how some of these experiences led to the book. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And I I learned a lot reading it and have already uh, implemented a lot of it in my own journalism. So um, I want to ask you as well. So you, with the Evergrey, you did this exchange uh, with Sherman County, Oregon, a very small community of mainly Republicans. So you take this bus full of uh, liberals from Seattle down to Oregon <laughs> mm-hmm. and have this cultural exchange. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about what that meant to you to do that. Oh, it meant a lot. <laughs> Some deleted scenes uh, from chapter eight in, in I Never Thought of It That Way are from this. And the deleted scenes were all about my own fear. Uh, it meant a lot to me because from the very beginning, I could tell as I was working on this with my co-founder and others who were helping organize that this was, this was insane, that, that this is the kind of thing you're not supposed to be able to do. It's not supposed to be worth it. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's only 20 people from Seattle going down. So, Hey, how, how does this translate into page views or clicks or anything? And it was just this deep conviction that no, this absolutely was worth it and extremely valuable and we needed to do it. And, and even though it doesn't have the right sort of scale that media usually pursues, that it was really important. And I was extremely afraid. I had nightmares. Um, you know, that somebody would say something, that people would blow up at each other and that I wouldn't know how to handle it. And neither would my co-founder, neither would anyone else. You know, she and I kept like going over scenarios. What if someone says this? What if someone says that? What will we do? We talked with our contact in Sherman County. We 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 organized it with him. You know, we were really close partners the whole way. And, and I thought that has to be enough. That has to be enough. But all the way down, that was a five hour bus ride down. My heart would not stop pounding. Um, And then it all felt better. One of the first exercises we did when we had the people from Sherman County and the people from Seattle, all in Sherman County in this room, one of the first exercises we did was we had everyone go around and say why they were there. What what would make this a good use of their time? Mm. And I couldn't tell the difference between the people from Sherman County and the people from Seattle. Mm. Everyone wanted the same thing and with a passion. And everyone was saying, I just don't, I think that we're way too divided. I can tell that something's broken. I'm here to listen. I'm here to be heard. I'm here to connect. People from the city never come down, you know, for in the case of Sherman County and in the case of the folks in cities, I just don't know that many Republicans. I really want to understand. And I cannot tell you, I mean, my anxiety dropped like 10 points right there. And I thought, why didn't I have faith in people? This was like, that's what it ultimately meant to me, I think, to answer your question is, People are capable of this and people want this. It is not, it is not as hard as we think. It is not impossible. It's beautiful and we need it and we can do it for each other. And that, that gave me all the courage in the world. Mm. And part of what happens is this shift in perspective, which is the title of the book, right? I I never thought of it that way. There's a beautiful story you tell in the book Mm. about uh, rain in Seattle and changing your own perspective on that. Would you please tell us that story now? <laughs> yeah. So I moved to Seattle, um, you know, from very different parts of the country. And I had heard that the rain was horrible and all of that. And it is, it was horrible. <laughs> and I moved here in winter and it was just nonstop gray 
no one had really explained to me that the problem isn't so much the rain, it's the gray, but the rain ends up representing the gray. Just here's the drizzle and here's the muck. I loved wearing these like light little flats, you know? And so I'm walking around Seattle and all, my feet are always wet. I didn't have a good rain jacket. I was like in denial about this. Uh, anyway, and I was feeling pretty miserable about it. So I'm in a bar uh, with some friends and uh, including, you know, some new folks I'd never met. And, and the, you know, we end up talking about, oh, you're new to Seattle. And the typical question, like, what do you think of the weather here? And I was like, well, I, I kind of hate it. I, I know that's cliche, but I, I really can't stand this weather. And so this friend starts telling me that he loves the rain. He's been here his whole life and he loves the rain and here's why. And, and he says basically that it has an oral beauty, A-U-R-A-L, that what he loves is the sound of the rain. And then he tells me about it. He, te he tells me about like, you know, when he gets somewhere in his car, he sometimes just stays in the car if it's raining and he'll listen to that little pitter patter. The Seattle rain is fairly soft. It's not usually a downpour. It's, it's always kind. The rain here is very kind. And it just kind of falls and he'll close his eyes and just kind of think about it. And, and as he's talking, I'm looking outside uh, on Olive Way and Capitol Hill in Seattle and I'm seeing some rain come down and I, it, it all happened in an instant. And, and all of a sudden I was like, boom, I never thought of it that way. The rain is beautiful. The rain does sound beautiful. I'm a musician. The rain does sound beautiful. Wait a second. It is kind. It, it is gentle. It is awesome. Okay. <laughs> and, and from that moment on, I didn't hate the rain just like that. Um, because something he had said just landed in my brain and made sense. And there's a, there's a bunch of moments like this in the book where you have that sort of flash of understanding. Another one is reading a New York times article about the protests mm. on the economic shutdowns, a man called Philip Campbell. What was the quote that sort of changed everything for you in that article? Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, it was deep down in the article. And I remember thinking they should have put this way at the top <laughs> because it's so good. Uh, but it was a man who did go to the protests early on in the pandemic. And back at that time, you know, it was hundreds of people, but a lot of um, protest of the protests, of course, from other parts of the country, just, hey, these people are getting together at a time when we should be further apart and they're doing it for the wrong reasons. Um, it, there was just a lot of that. Uh, and the quote, if I recall, was this man was saying that he that that he feels that he's got his mother hanging off the cliff on one end because of her health. And he's got his son hanging off a cliff on the other end because of um, his own economic well-being, of his ability to have a job and make sure that he can make money for his son. And he says, like, I, f I feel like I have my mother on one, on, you know, hanging from the cliff. I have my son hanging from the cliff and I can only choose one. And he said, I have the right to be frustrated by the choice. And that was definitely, and I never thought of it that way moment. I, I was, you know, I was in the, you know, more liberal place, what have you, um, of, of, well, yeah, of course these shutdowns, we just have to do it. Uh, economic well-being is not the same as health. Um, you know, we just got to power through and these protests really don't make sense. And when I read that quote, I was like, wait a second, you know, I'm speaking as someone who has everything she needs. You know, even if I did get, if I lost my job, I'd be okay for a while. And I don't, I don't know the stories of people for whom, oh my gosh, how is economic well-being all that different from health? <laughs> if you lose your job and lose all the ways that you can make money, if you're looking at your children, wondering if you can provide for them, you have no idea what's happening, your business is closed and 
You don't, I mean, how is that different, right? And so, so that, that quote really, he does have the right to be frustrated by the choice. I am now also frustrated by that choice. I'm, I am glad that I'm seeing it from his point of view and from his life and his path. And, and you, you write a little bit in the book about assumptions and how assumptions can hold us back from having that moment that you just described. Tell me a little bit about how you have worked with overcoming those assumptions. Mm, in my own life? Yeah, in your own thinking, mm-hmm. in your own life, yeah. Yeah, uh, th- this has taken some practice. Um, I think that we're used to thinking of assumptions as problematic only in certain areas at certain times, right? So for example, now there's a big and important conversation about race and our assumptions about people based on their racial category are very top of mind. And and it's a place where we're all questioning that at a deeper level maybe than ever. And that's very productive. Um, And we do that with gender, you know, but we don't do it with everything and we should. (laughs) Should do it with everything. Uh, it's It's a sort of inquiry. So I think of it this way. The book is, I never thought of it that way, is ultimately about curiosity. And curiosity is about asking questions. It's about trying to fill the gap between what you know and what you don't know. But curiosity only works. It can only push you toward learning while your attention is on that gap, while you see that gap and you know that something's missing. You have to know something's missing. Assumptions are like little veils that cover that gap. So you don't even notice that there's a gap. You think you know, so you won't think to ask. So assumptions just sort of masquerade as certainty. Assumptions masquerade as you know everything you need to know about what they think and why they think it and whatnot. And if we walk around with assumptions at a time like this that is so polarized and divided, man, we're missing a whole lot of opportunities to learn. Um, So the way that I've thought about this honestly has to do, I think, a lot with with my career. Um, Journalism is the practice of questioning assumptions. (laughs) And I've been doing it, you know, 17 years or so. And and the reason I think it became so important to me wasn't so much that it's sort of the, the MO for journalism. It was because countless times, every time that I carried assumptions going into an interview about what someone would say, I mean... I would always have assumptions that I didn't catch and they wouldn't come out until the interview. When, when the person would answer a question, I'd be like, Oh, that wasn't what I thought they would say at all. Cool. (laughs) And then it would make me really curious and I'd go. And so now I'm just so used to being surprised by people all the time that I think, I think I've realized that I will, I will always be surprised by them. And I don't know anybody. I do not know anybody. I don't know anybody's heart. I don't know anybody's brain. And, uh, and, and carrying assumptions into a conversation with them only limits us, limits me, it limits them, it limits the amount of exploration that we can do uh, at that intersection. And me personally, I'm endlessly fascinated by people. I find them incredible <laughs> and it's so interesting to a T, to a person. Um, yeah, so, so assumptions get in the way of that. And, and the better job I can do of catching myself in one, what I do then as I turn the assumption, this person must think X into a question. Does this person think X? And then I ask. Mm. And that sort of real love of people and love of conversation and of the sort of magic of that process of of learning about other people really jumps off the page in this book. Mm. 
And one of the things I was thinking about with that is you write about in your childhood and those long lunches in Mexico around your grandparents' table and what that experience of is, if hearing the conversation, when you think about that magic that happens between two people, when you're actually listening and learning and thinking and absorbing, how do you think about that experience? How do you, how do you digest that? Um, so, so, so I'm clear, how do I digest that experience as a participant in a conversation between two people? Yeah, I, I'm not saying it very well. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I share your love of that magic. And I don't always know how to A, convey that to people, that love of that experience. What is this experience that we're experiencing right now? Yeah. Oh man. Okay. So to me, it's, <laughs> to me, it's, it's the, it's, it's conversation. Uh, usually when people think about conversation, they just think about people talking and that's the end of it. No, um, <laughs> no conversation is so cool. We live in our heads. We live in our minds. The, the, our thoughts about the world are the world. Uh, it, our interpretations are what matter. And when two people come together and are able to be actually pretty open and, you know, I put my meaning, I, I attempt to put my meaning somewhere between us in this pool and you put your meaning between us as well. And it starts to mix and it starts to contrast and mingle. And I can almost see ideas kind of going up and being like, Hey, who are you? I'm another idea. Oh, Hey, what's going on? Like shake hands, you know? And, and there's this sort of push and pull. Um, conversation is an extraordinary superpower that we have. I mean, we never think about it. Right. But the way that I read your gestures, your tone, um, the, 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 the decisions I make in milliseconds about what I'm going to say next, and, and with what tone and how welcome I feel and where I should stay guarded and where I should let go is just amazing. Uh, another deleted scene from the book, one of the most memorable conversations of my life happened when I was studying abroad in England my junior year of college. And um, a few girls that I had met, we'd become very close friends. And we stayed up talking one night after going to a club and saw the sun come up. And I will never forget looking like behind my friend Amy's head and seeing the sun and, and just realizing that that whole time, hours and hours and hours, we had opened ourselves up to each other to this enormous degree and learned so much. We talked about religion. We talked about the meaning of life. We talked about what the heck we're going to do when we're older. Like, oh, it was so epic. And, uh, you know, how often do we have conversations like that? A couple times in a lifetime. But like. <laughs> but but even but even versions that are, you know, if it's half an hour, if it's an hour, if it's 10 minutes of real candor, we we take away from conversation some transformative things sometimes and, and stories stick in our head. Um, Darius Ballinger, this wonderful storyteller, says the shortest distance between two people is a story. And it's in conversation that we can hear someone tell their own story and it can land on us and it can it can become the thought when we think of an issue. When I think of COVID, I think of that man quoted in the New York Times now, you know, and, and when I have conversations, I think of that person I met who has this wildly different experience. And I will never think of that experience the same way again because of that conversation. Um, and in the conversation is the strongest place because I can engage with it. The New York Times article, I couldn't I couldn't talk to, to that man. Right. But in a conversation, I can I can bring my own challenges and questions. I can pull what is most interesting and valuable to me. I can employ my curiosity to it, the nth degree. And, and it's extraordinary. Um, it takes the right conditions to be able to be that powerful, but we can make those conditions. We can dial it up in any context. 
And you write in detail about what those conditions look like in the book, which is super helpful. Can you just give us a snapshot quickly of what those conditions look like? Yeah. So there's there's a few things to think about. Um, time, self-explanatory, the amount of time people have. <clears throat> if you try to start a deep conversation while someone's out the door, it's not going to go well. Parity. Uh, parity, by that I mean being on a level level field um, so that you both can get something out of the conversation. If someone is you know, the person posting on Instagram and the other person is the posted person commenting on Instagram, the poster has the power to delete or hide the comment of the person who commented. So, you know, you don't have parity. Um, containment is extremely important. Containment is, is the conversation contained to the people who can actually participate in it? Uh, online, we have lots of places where you have invisible mass audiences. You don't know who's listening or what they're going to do. That adds a level of anxiety that leads you to perform your ideas. Um, and probably not even make them your ideas as somebody else's instead of actually sharing what's deeply in your heart. Um, and then you have embodiment uh, and that is the full toolkit of, of the human person. So even here, you know, we have, I, I'm looking at you in a video, right? We have audio, we can hear each other's voices, uh, but we're not in the same room. So we don't have that sort of ambiance effect. That's really quite cool. And just to close, I mean, you know, I reached out to you a couple of weeks ago. I, I have a lot of concerns about where my country is at with polarization, a lot of concerns about where our, our profession is at. I wondered if you could tell me, what are your hopes? You, you talk about honesty, curiosity, respect in the book over and over. What are your hopes for journalism going forward? Mm. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We, you know, I, I shouldn't assume, but, but I, yeah. I do think that you and I probably have similar, similar feelings, some similar concerns. Um, it's the incuriosity. It's the incuriosity that needs to be zapped out. You know, how, how, how can journalists unintentionally be incurious? One, by framing our interviews or our story selection with assumptions baked in. Uh, assumptions about the narratives that matter and the ones that don't. Uh, assumptions about, you know, what is relevant. And then we can go into the world asking questions that actually, once people hear the questions and they hear certain assumptions baked in, it closes them off to telling us what's really going on. It closes them off for them sharing their actual opinions. And what they'll do is go to talking points or think about what's safe to share. Uh, and then they'll give us those stories. And then journalists will tell the stories based on performances. And then we'll just share stories about performances and no one learns anything. I think that this is happening a lot uh, and it makes me very sad, but I don't think it's, I don't think that individual journalists mean, mean to do this. I think that it is, it's merely a fact that a polarized world affects everyone. Uh, I think sometimes journalists feel, well, we take our craft seriously. So we're immune to the blinding effects of, of this world. You know, we're not, we don't carry any, any bias here about, people's views. Of course we do. Of course we do. <laughs> we absolutely do. And we have to go out of our way to reveal those to ourselves and to make sure that we are catching every assumption in the act. Every assumption, you know, this person looks this way, they must hold these politics. This person showed up in this place. And so they must have this view on this issue. I'm going to ask them a question that sort of presumes the goodness or badness of one of those issues. Um, you know, the moral piece is a really challenging one, I, but I still believe, I, I believe the journalist's primary um, goal is 
calling is to be curious. We, we have to be. Um, if we can't hear people's true stories, I mean, it's, we're, we're the ones charged by our democracy to go out and hear the truth, right? And we're very concerned with hearing the tr- with the truth of fact, as we ought to be, right? Every good, every good democratic society needs to know, needs to have that discipline of fact. We're so concerned with the truth of fact, and we're forgetting the truth of people's perspectives. We, we, we're not as good as we need to be right now at, at creating the conditions in our interviews and in our stories where people know that we are actually truly interested in hearing what they think, where they are, what their paths are, and how their paths led them to their position on any issue. If we can't do that for our society, our society will break. It is already somewhat broken. And, and the more that journalists turn away from that calling um, or, or, you know, maybe refuse to see it for good reasons, um, we, we've got to get back to that because people can't solve problems if they can't see what's going on and we cannot see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a good place to leave it. And I want to thank you for your work. I want to thank you for this beautiful book and, and for coming on and having a conversation about it today. Thank you, Monica. Thank you so much, Tara. This was great. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 